being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Hello and welcome back to the Principal's Office Podcast. This is Jeff Gorski from Leaders Building Leaders and I'm so pleased to be able to bring you today's podcast. We recorded this podcast on a visit to an amazing public charter school, Cape Fear Center for Inquiry in Wilmington, North Carolina. This school is well into its lifespan, over 15 years in and serves students in kindergarten through eighth grade, utilizing, as the name suggests, an inquiry-based education plan. One of the things that shocked me in the process of asking questions and learning more about this school, how they do business and what makes them unique to the other schools around them, is the misconception that I brought in about what inquiry-based learning can look like. And I think that Lori Roy, the principal, and her team described this in a, in a way that I'll never forget. They said, inquiry doesn't mean that we just pose problems for the kids to learn. Instead, we teach them just enough to get them started and let them take it from there. I love that mindset and I love and all values that they're able to promote in their school to match some, but not all, of the students in their community. Their school is a great example of what I believe public charter schools are designed to do, which is bring a unique mission to the students and families of their area. So please have a listen. This is Lori Roy, principal from Cape Fear Center for Inquiry, and her administrative team answering a few questions from other North Carolina school leaders about what makes their school run and succeed. Thanks for listening. Can we just go through everybody and do some sales yeah. and then uh, we'll go. Yeah, so these are the ladies that make it happen. Three of the four. <laughs> Jennifer is our curriculum coordinator. She's not here today, but. I'm Lori right. Benazzi. I'm the EC, uh, EC coordinator and MT. I'm Jennifer Solomon and I'm the human resources coordinator. I'm Kathy Koch. I'm business operations coordinator. I've been here 10 years. Yeah, we started together. <laughs> and Lori, the director, and actually our board chair. So, yeah. your team. We are. <laughs> it's a great team. It's a great team. For schools that want to be able to do a better job with project-based learning, you guys have a lot of experience under under your belts at this point in time. Um, I see novel sets all around this room as an awesome resource. How do you build curricular resources for your teachers to use project-based learning or expeditionary learning? Um, What do you lean on? Is it all developed here? Sure, I think um, it is always something we're working towards strengthening. Like it's never, I feel like every year we're like, oh, we've got to get better at this, or we've got to get better at this, or we've got to get better at this. So there's never been, in the 10 years I've been here, there's not been a year where we've been like, we're good. 
you know we're good with inquiry we're good with you know resources we're good so we're always looking for grants um, I think that's one of our big like this year with the technology focus so we that's probably been the way we've done things is we in terms of fundraising and grant writing we try to um, focus on one bigger thing so um, every other year I feel like it's been either outdoor education or technology and so in terms of fundraising and bringing in resources that way um, when you have an initiative that you're able to push for that's when people are like oh okay well this is gonna help my kids so I'll give you money you know or oh that goes directly to support K-8 education when you're writing a grant the more kids you can impact the more um, because one of the um, one of the issues we run into with grant writing is we're, we're not as diverse as some schools so we don't qualify for um, some of the grants that other schools qualify for so we have to find kind of other creative ways to get funding um, but in terms of, of building curricular resources our teachers do a lot of that that legwork um, on their own um, we started we we partner with the school of inquiry in south carolina that's tied to um, um, it's a center for inquiry with um what's the the gamecocks <laughs> University of, um, University of South Carolina thank you um, and they they're actually I think two or three years older than us and they um, Heidi Mills who's just retired with them um, has come to CFCI and she's she's kind of brought um, a planning structure that we needed because uh, we were just kind of doing things that seemed right for a while um, and so in the summers our teachers get together they collaborate and develop integrated units of study and we, we try to not bite off two more than we can chew um, in terms of, of that so we're trying to get one or two a summer and so that over time I mean you can reuse those things so um, we've, we've put a little more formality to it in the last that's just been in the last two or three years so it's you know you come back in, in five more years you're going to see something totally mm -hmm. different and awesome because kids need different and awesome things so. Some of our best resources have been local though. Mm -hmm. um, we really, our local GMP plant, um, mm -hmm. we partnered with for smaller grants. So don't overlook the smaller things. Yeah. It might seem like, you know, we're doing an awful lot of work for not a lot of money. Um, but it, those can be some of the bigger, more beneficial. We just got one from GE locally. Our music, musical mm -hmm. theater teacher really partnered with them for stage and lighting. And they're paying the rights for a play, which can be very expensive, you know, $600 approximately for for the rights to apply for a year and things like that. We also have a local group called Work on Wilmington that we usually get them about every other year. And it's a local volunteer group in the community for nonprofits. And we write a grant. Um, they supply the materials and come out for four hours on a Saturday. Um, that's how we did a lot of our perimeter path. And then we'll do, one year we got this gazebo. section back here. Mm -hmm. When we did the gazebo, we did the perimeter path. We wanted to do this section and they, um, funded us the year before, so they didn't want to fund us. They were hesitant to do it again. Um, so we did our own work on Wilmington projects with our parents and our families. And that's how we got this section back here with all volunteer work. So we really utilized that. We have an outdoor stage you guys didn't see on that side. And yeah, so we do a lot of local, find local groups. Kiwanis sometimes gives us money for field trips and things like that. Oh, no, go ahead. Are you sure? Yep, yep. So do you guys have, we just were brand new, we opened September 5th, and instead of a PTO or a PTA, 
we had lots of volunteers and business members from our school come together and they created what's called the Coastal Collaborative. Um, very similar, but they kind of answer to the board of directors and they have a liaison about how the money's raised and spent, things like that, and we broke it into nine teams so that they can work on where their talents and treasures are most useful. Um, do you guys have, how do you organize that kind of volunteer? Yeah, we have um, we have a PTA, uh, well, the partnership, we call it the partnership. Okay. Um, it doesn't sound like it's quite organized the exact same way, but they do they do separate fundraising and um, they do a, a Fund the Wonder campaign, which is happening right now. You probably saw the signs. Um, we don't do like wrapping paper and door-to-door -door stuff. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. That right. is totally cool if your school does that. Um, we have found that parents would typically rather just write a check. Yes. Um, That's what they're asking us to do. And so we we do a um, Fund the Wonder every year, and this started long before me. I'm, I think it was probably one of the initial founding um, ideas is that we're, we're not going to do a, a bunch of door-to-door -door fundraisers and stuff like that. Um, the, it, not that it's required, you know, for anybody to give anything, but just they do a one big fall campaign, Fund the Wonder for a couple weeks, and, and families, um, Thanks to GoFundMe and electronic um, opportunities, it's so much easier to push to grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So yeah, that's um, that's what our partnership does. Okay. And then we do a, one big fundraiser um, typically in the spring. Actually taking a break this year, but um, uh, called Great Art Expectations, which is a big art art auction. It sounds like maybe the, the committees that you're talking about with your partnership are more like our committee structure within our school. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of, we have a very large committee structure and we invite parents as well as board members mm -hmm. to sit on those committees. Gotcha. Um, the partnership is a separate 501c3. Okay. And they decide how to spend the money. But within our committees, we talk about, you know, needs from the school and then we branch out and we might put a request into our partnership and say we want to fund gotcha. this. Um, and they've been fantastic about so really working with They do teacher so stipends. And, yeah, you're yeah, so much yeah. further along. So in order to have our collaborative become a foundation, 501c3, we need about three years. So we've started the structure now mm -hmm. so that in three years we can transition. Thank you. I just want to take a few steps before all of this and because I, all of your staff they were very comfortable in their own skin and around movement around their classroom. So do you have a successful equation for when you have an opening? How do you find that exact marriage of an individual that delivers best practices, feels comfortable with project-based learning, inquiry learning? How do you find that? What is, what's your key to success for that? <laughs> <laughs> there's the, there's the um, formula. That is a great question. I think we're always looking to. Um, but I'm thinking you don't have. A, I want an. I want a black and white answer. <laughs> I would say the best practice when when we can, when we know we have an opening and it's during the school year, is we do multiple rounds of interviews and we bring them in to teach lessons. Um, we do not hesitate to bring back two or three candidates and have them teach. In the summers, we have them teach for the panel, which is it's just different, um, you know. And then sometimes, sometimes we don't. Like sometimes you just know, like that is the person we want. We are snagging them up now before somebody else does. And sometimes we, um, I mean, we've had multiple times that we've gone back to the drawing board 
you know, I'd rather put a substitute in a classroom before I put the wrong teacher in the classroom because anybody who's been through the wrong teacher knows it is not easy <laughs> and it takes your whole year, um, you know, so. We also do panel interviews and anyone in the school that would like to be on the interview panel is invited to be, so yeah. it's not just yeah. two of us making the decision. Uh, there are a lot of eyes and ears on the candidate. Um, sometimes that's very overwhelming for the <laughs> candidate, so we try to tailor that and keep that in mind for our staff to not overwhelm someone, but sometimes there's great interest and uh, we have a series of questions and it's a process mm -hmm. and there's a lot of buy-in from the staff and um, you can imagine if we're replacing a loop member, mm -hmm. that whole loop wants to be part of that panel, you know, and then you've got at least me and, and Jennifer and often Lori and Jennifer mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and so then, it just, yeah, uh, sometimes some of the specialists and a lot of, mm -hmm. sometimes teacher assistants as well and some of the teachers. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Lori, how do you, how do you know well, no, let me change it. Why is your school successful? And how do you know? <laughs> um, I mean, you guys just walked around. You can feel it in this building. Like, you can feel that kids want to be here, you know, and that and teachers want to be here. And um, we have our ups and downs, you know. We've, we, we have lots of ups and downs here. Uh, but when it comes to going into a classroom and seeing a teacher in action, you can tell that those people want to be here and they want to be doing their job. And to, so to me, that's like, and the kids want to be here and they want to be learning. You know, when the, and, and when and if any of that changes, then we know we have a problem that we need to fix, whether that's, you know, a, a building stronger community within the classroom or an instructional issue with the teacher or um, we just need to sit down and, and or do some more professional development or, or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you just, you just well, I think one of the questions people ask because we go through eighth grade, what happens to your kids when they leave here? Mm -hmm. You know, we, mm -hmm. we put our kids in a variety of schools, sometimes early college, sometimes the traditional high school in town. Um, and how does that work out for them? And anecdotally, um, I have two children that are in, well, one's in college. Um, once in high school, <laughs> I was still adjusting, <laughs> and then once in eighth, eighth grade. grade. Yeah. yeah, and what I hear from teachers are that kids that come out of CFCI, they, they're used to the projects, um, they can speak in public, they're very confident individuals. Um, most my children, as well as many other kids that I've talked to, they get to the high school and they're like, is this it? You know, and they're all taking honors and AP classes. And they're just, it's just the projects that they talk about, they scare you when you're going to the high school meetings. It's gonna be four hours of homework a night. Really think about trying to do sports with this. I don't know if you can do it. And our kids are so used to the projects that it's just not, you know, they all seem to, to do very well. As a, <clears throat> and as a parent, what I would say is, how do I know that CFCI is a success? I've got a kindergartner, and as a parent that already went through the kindergarten phase, but my kindergartner at the time was at a public school, a different school, um, I had so much anxiety about that. You know, her, what's it going to be like? Is she going to adjust? Is she going to be happy? 
and we are like what two months in maybe now um <laughs> and she is like on saturday am i going to school today no today's not a school day <sighs> you know that whole thing and um for me that's a gauge of success of the school i i hand on heart have never had a day where my fifth grader didn't say she wanted to go to school she has challenges at school she has social challenges at school with friends but it was such a different thing than what I experienced in another school before I got here. She didn't want to go to school. She didn't feel part of the group. She didn't, I didn't feel like she was learning. I come in when she does her inquiry projects and she has to present in front of the whole class. And I mean, I present for a profession and I get nervous every time before I present. And she just kind of rocks up to the front of the thing and she's like presenting, right? So I just feel like in terms of building the person, building who that person's going to be as an adult, this is just such a solid foundation um, to start with, just from, from the atmosphere that, that you guys have created here. And um, I know we talked in, in pockets <coughs> and Kathy kind of hit on it, but we are a very shared leadership model. I mean, there are, there are very <coughs> few decisions that are made in isolation, because you guys know if you do that, it's going to backfire. So, um, <laughs> but we have, um, even our faculty meetings, um, it's all, gauged around the responsive classroom model. We sit in a circle in our faculty meetings. I don't lead our faculty meetings. Teachers <coughs> sign up to either be a facilitator or a recorder or a process observer. And then we have director's items as part of it. Um, so if there's anything that I need, and there are meetings that I I just contribute as just as a member of the family. Um, and How often then do you meet? Every Wednesday. Unless we don't need to, mm -hmm. and then we don't. Um, Which doesn't very often. Um, there's always a, you know, a little something, but we do professional development during that time also, um, like once a month as well. We build in either this year we're rotating between inquiry professional development and responsive classroom. Um, just to make How sure many years have you been doing the responsive classroom? Since we were founded, I believe. Oh, wow. It may have been, wow. it, yeah, but it was, it's, it's part, part of, who, of who we are. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The responsive classroom has been around since 1981. If you've never been to a responsive classroom training, they do leadership trainings. It's not a, a cheap thing um, in terms of training for your staff, but um, the leadership trainings aren't bad, and they do them in like Chapel Hill and places. To, it, it would be worth you know a few hundred bucks just to go. This is our out. first year. We've partnered with uh, Tiller School okay. down in Beaufort and uh, trained staff this year. Yeah. And this we're implementing. Uh, first year. Yeah, we we resent a, a team this past year, and they've made a lot of changes. That's the one thing about responsive classrooms; they've really upped their game over the years, and so they they're focusing on really. It's not just the social component, but it's blending academics into you know those first six weeks of school and everything else. So it's really a, it's been a, it's, it's been very rejuvenating for the teachers as well. I've been teaching 15 years before I was hired at Tiller. And it's the responsive classroom that really changed my life. Um, I'd been in middle schools and you know, just was searching at the current middle school that I'd been at of, gosh, we're missing something. What are we missing? We tried to fill it in you know, with homeroom activities and that kind of stuff, but it was responsive classroom all along. And I just love it. Our teachers love it. I've got a quick question for you in the world of testing. Um, you know, we're islands, and I love that, you know, I'm so proud of, yeah. of yeah. who Tiller is and our uniqueness and mm -hmm. the independence that we can 
bring to the education world, but we're also, you know, mm -hmm. our hands are tied when it comes mm -hmm. to certain things. And yep. so <clears throat> what I'm struggling with is, um, because we share a lot of views that you do mm -hmm. as far as what is valuable to us child education. Um, but I'm struggling with our testing philosophy because it feels like it's moments of, oh, don't worry about it, things are great. And then it's moments of, oh, you know, I've got to get this, you know, we, and, and we sort of ride this roller coaster ride. And maybe that's what the world is. I don't know. But does it have to be? <laughs> so yeah. I wonder what's your. You know, how do you communicate your testing philosophy? What is your testing philosophy when it comes yeah. to the preparation for these kids? So, um, and I'm gonna let Lori tag on some of this, but we um, we have never been a school that focused on test scores, mm -hmm. but we would be lying if we didn't say test scores didn't mean something because when people look at you, they look at your test scores. Um, you know, our test scores this year aren't as strong as they've been in previous years. And so we have a board that we're answering to for that. and. Um, and we've identified some things that we need to work on from that one test, but we don't look at just that one test. So um, we've kind of transitioned. You guys met, I don't know if you heard me introduce the lady who was walking through the very beginning of our tour, but that was Lisa Cole, our new intervention specialist. Um, you, When Lori introduced herself, she's our EC coordinator and also our MTSS coordinator. Mm -hmm. So MTSS is something, um, I'm sure that's familiar to most of you at least. Um, uh, the idea of using, um, creating a framework to help us make sure we're meeting the needs of all of our kids. You know, one of the things that we we identified in addition to kids who are in need is that we weren't identifying kids who are gifted. Apparently we're supposed to do that, and for 18 years we haven't been doing that. <laughs> no, the state knows, so we're fixing that. But we're doing it all through the same framework with the same language and the same, and I think that's been helpful to our population um, so that it's not this fear of, oh my gosh, MTSS is only kids who are struggling. Why are you, you know, changing everything about CSCI? No. Um, so let Lori talk. when the change happened um, in 2014, MTSS really came out and that as a school we needed to have a framework all set up by 2020, July 1st, 2020, or else we're not going to be able to find kids eligible for um, a learning disability. So myself, Lori, and Jennifer Curriculum Coordinator, we spent hours trying to take what we had. We had RTI, which was the pathway basically to EC, and shift it. And so since 2014, we have grown so much as a school. Um, we have laid down that framework. Um, back then, um, our, there are many teachers in our school that don't believe in testing. They don't. They think that some, even especially younger grades, think it's you know a waste of time. It's not true representation of what they can do. Um, but <coughs> since then, I feel like um, we kind of use that we don't have a choice right now, um, and we have to set this framework up in order to help everybody. And so over the years, we created an MTSS committee, which uh, it had a representative of each loop level. And um, just the buy-in was tremendous. And we used, at <coughs> first year, we used um, a pro, we used Moby Max as our screener, which wasn't a screener, it, but it showed the data and the teachers were just in awe of all the red flags that they didn't catch. And just the kids, even in the middle, that were fine. That, so, let me just interject. Yeah. Up until then, we had nothing to look at our kids from second to eighth grade that was the same, except for EOGs, which we don't really, you know. Yeah. Um, they just don't give us any information. EOGs right. is just the one. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to sell this school on the need of a universal screener was one of the most painful growing oh, yeah. changes 
of my life and oh education. God. So what are you using now? We use MAP. We use the MAP assessment, MAP assessment. and WEA. Right. Yeah, last year we used something called FAST, and we were not thrilled with it. So we're using the MAP growth, and we have the skills navigator, too, which we're really excited about. But it's, it's year one. Yeah. It's, we don't know yet. Yeah. The skills you navigator is a little... We just implemented it, so yeah. you think my Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Montessori's yeah. using it, too. So. Okay. Island Montessori yeah. does... Yeah, they don't use the, the skills they navigator use, part. But they use the growth. Yeah. So we and, might be able to learn from each other. We just had a PD. Um, just we sat down and everybody printed up their um, their student data. And I mean, the teachers wasn't it? I mean, it was just so exciting in there because they're like, oh my goodness, this matches with my math groups. And because the the NWA math growth, it actually groups your kids mm -hmm. and for the teachers. So mm -hmm. it was really cool. So the teachers are finally getting. They're finally. They're really motivated by it, and it's not necessarily you know, sit-down tests in the computer lab, and they, um, the kids think it's more of a game. My daughter's in second grade, and she was talking about it, um, how she went to computer and took a test, and I said, what's a test? Because she don't take many tests, and she said it was a game. It was a math game. So it wasn't, it wasn't very stressful for her, um, but the shift is happening, and we, now that we're talking about MTSS, um, and EC, just to throw this out there, I contacted um, many of you. This is Southeastern, right? Um, your EC coordinators um, by email like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, before the EC conference. And um, I have copies of this email. But one of the Island Montessori, Alicia Real, and I are creating, with help from DPI, but just um, kind of like this <laughs> for EC coordinators. Um, and we're um, actually offering CPI training um, sometime in November. And that was um, from Joe Simmons from the state. He's encouraging us to do that. So I heard back from, I think, Tillers and a couple, two others, but not many other people. So I'm going to give you the email. And there's a Google form to fill out. And if you just want to be a part of it, even just the CPI training, because as a charter school, there's nobody to train you unless you want to. We're sending one of our AC teachers right now, this week, to actual training for CPI that's like $2,800. So if you're interested in that, let me know. I'll give you one of these papers, and our EC coordinators can get together. Anyway. <coughs> I don't know if that answered your question, but I hope it did. Well, it just, it just you know, it's just nice to hear someone that shares the same the same thing. Yeah. And that yeah. it's just something we're going to have to work through. Yeah. And, um, Data is not a bad thing. Yeah. The overuse of testing is a bad thing. Yeah. The over-testing children is something we really, really are conscientious to avoid. Yeah. Um, we use the minimum components of M class that we have, you know, um, in terms of testing our second, third graders. And we don't do the portfolios and all that stuff. But we... Um, we sort of went the opposite. We, we were heavy in maybe two or three technology programs for some data, but could never quite mesh real life and the computer yeah. version of the child. It was really, we tried yeah, for years. I know. And then finally, you know, at the end of last school year, like, we're not going to try anymore. And we just, we stopped. And, and we've yeah. sort of backed off of the technology some. We've put more into, um, some Fontas and Pinnell, some you know, yeah, running records, doing some big literacy continuum, that type of thing, and getting. But the data part is so important. Uh, you know, collecting that, holding on to what we do, the MTSS. We've got PP plans that we work with our student support. But you know, it's just. Um, I'm it's, having a hard time formulating in my mind a nice statement of my of our testing philosophy. 
if someone were to walk up today, what's your testing philosophy? Yeah, just got a half hour or so. <laughs> and so I think I can eventually get to that point, but I just need to hear from more people. Yeah. So I think so part thanks. of that is, is knowing your education plan. Yeah. Right? Yes. We, we work with a lot of schools, and I ask them, how would you describe your education plan to me in two minutes? And most schools can't do it. Yeah. That's a problem. You have to know who you are and why you exist. Yeah. Part of that, you have to know whether it's working. Right. So yeah. part of your answer is, well, we need to know the kids are learning. Yeah. This is one measure yeah. of 100 that we do to ensure mm -hmm. our education plan is working. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's part of the conversation. And there's so many schools that have math and in class and every other acronym you can imagine and then we ask them for their data and they don't have they don't have it. it's not readily available no one knows how to read it so just be intentional pick one and start there and see is this giving me the information that i need to make better decisions as a as a school leader as ac coordinator and you know, curriculum we get together and look at it and that's that's uh, that doesn't happen often enough but every great school that we walk into has a plan yeah. And they work their plan. Yeah. Well, we, we, I mean, we're in a school and we met growth and all that great stuff. That's yeah. fantastic. But, you know, no one can tell me how to calculate growth. <laughs> no one uh, can tell me how that's formula. And so all of those things don't mean a whole lot in your heart. Um, sure. You know, when, when no one can really yeah. testify and explain. So, um, I don't know. We're just, um, I don't feel that this is a scary place to be. This is an opportunity, yeah. you know, for us. But um, it's just going to take a lot of listening and, and, like you're saying, really looking at our data, what are the decisions that we made. Um, so thank you. That's a key word of intention. Yeah. You know, there's so many assessments out there. People get lost in them. Yeah. Can I ask one more question about inquiry-based learning? Yeah. Uh, having experts in this is something that I'm looking forward to because I feel like a lot of schools try and do it and miss the mark. So is there anything you can say that you see that other schools, when they try to introduce inquiry-based learning or when they try and execute inquiry-based learning, that they miss the mark on or that you guys know that you do really well in your approach to inquiry-based learning? It's planning. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so if someone, if you're, if a school were trying to transition to become an inquiry-based school, it's picking something small. You know, don't start so big. Um, we're, um, like I said, we've just now in the last three years gotten to that summer planning point, and that has transformed what we're doing in the classrooms. Um, we were getting complaints from our older parents that were uh, for like our middle school kids and, and even some of our upper elementary kids that they weren't going on enough field trips you know well, we weren't planning for them to be able to integrate field trips into their curriculum they were stressed about it they're waiting until school started um, and so that that is the, the biggest and no matter what your curriculum model is taking the time to look at your year at a time when you're not so stressed out um, we give them a little stipend, it is not much, and we feed them lunch and provide childcare. So that it takes, and, and it's voluntary, and uh, we were almost 100% this year of teachers who came, because your loop, obviously they want you to be there. <laughs> you know, if three of the four of you are coming, they're like, come on, we're planning our, um, and then in terms of planning for, for inquiry, um, it's, Developing 
um, it's a process. So it's not just a lesson plan. It's a it's teaching kids the process for learning. Um, and so it looks different for different kids, but basically you're, you're planning on what's the minimum information I can give this child or this class. You got 30 kids or 24 kids sitting in a class. They don't all need like a full-blown math, for instance. They don't need a full-blown, you know, hour lecture on whatever the, the content is. So we really try to do that mini lesson kind of model, give them just enough and, and then let them go with it. Um, and so for some of our kids, that might not look so free and independent, but for some of our kids, I mean, we have a seventh grader right now who has just taken her, we, we had to do something totally different for her. She's busted through Khan Academy and is ready for, for Math One, um, which we don't really do with seventh grade, um, unless you just have those exceptional kids. So it's providing them that opportunity. Um, I wish you guys could come back with our teachers, you know, and let them kind of talk, talk you through mm -hmm. some of their lesson plans. I mean, you guys can talk as parents, too, which you see in the classroom. Well, it's a non-teacher viewpoint, I guess. Um, I feel like years ago, inquiry used to, some of the teachers would think of inquiry as a thing. So they would have their day, and then they would have inquiry, like an hour at the end of the day where they did inquiry. Um, don't do that, I don't think, in any of our classrooms anymore. It's really a mindset change where inquiry isn't a thing. It's like you said, a process, but it's something that you do all day in all of your lessons. So your math lesson isn't a math lesson, and then you do project in the end of the day and say we're doing inquiry. It's a process of teaching math through the inquiry model. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not just project-based learning, mm -hmm. right. um, although a project is... So that's the, like, we're doing Inquiry Showcase May 10th, if you guys want to come check that out. Uh, one of the things we're talking about, because we're doing it at the end of the year this year, is uh, all they're going to see is end products. We need to make sure we're showcasing all the steps along the way, because for parents even, our parents come to the museums and the kids are presenting these beautiful tri-boards or these beautiful PowerPoints or these beautiful speeches, like the end product, mm -hmm. but it's everything that they learned along the way in those units. Not even just the, the, the one-shot lessons, but the units that go back to that planning time. You know, and if you ask any teacher anywhere, but I'll know in this building because we just did an, an assessment, um, time, they need time, they're dying for time. Um, we have a shared leadership meeting tomorrow and the second item on the agenda is meetings. We're having so many meetings during planning. I mean, how many of your teachers complain about that? And, you know, it's just that constant uh, balance. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So I don't know if that helps. I just at all, have but. to say, I, when I started 10 years ago, I came in as a regular ed teacher. And um, I was a very type A teacher in a very traditional school. And when I came in, my biggest challenge was letting go of my mm -hmm. control. And I think that's what we're seeing with some of our newbie, newbies this year is they don't have to get it right on the first time. Yeah. And the product doesn't have to look like you planned it to look. So that was my biggest thing. But when you do let go and just, it's amazing to see where the kids can take it. So that was that was pretty. And we've supported teachers along that way since then. Um, but it is a transformation. It's a change of, of the way you think. I love that. I teach them the minimum yeah. idea. Yep. And all of our teachers have mentors, whether they're BTs or whether they're, if they're new to CFCI, 
everybody gets a mentor because it's just different. Um, you know, I mean, that's true in any school. You know, you go from CFCI to Taylor, it's going to look different. You need to, um, so we really try to provide support for our employees. What percentage of your teachers are licensed and, or, or not licensed? 100. 100% mm -hmm. of them are licensed. Mm -hmm. Minus some of our specials areas. We have a couple TAs who teach licensed. some middle school specials. Mm -hmm. Um, but and yeah, if they're not, uh, we've we've hired some lateral entry. Um, then we go through. Right. And what option <laughs> do you use the NISIS observation instrument for our BTS only? And then we have a CFCI evaluation tool that we use for our the rest of our staff. That's a blend of the North Carolina teaching practices and the national board practices mm -hmm. and the CFCI teaching standards. Um, so the TSCI teaching standards really are a blend of national national standards and inquiry-based standards. Um, so we're just kind of, and as an evaluator that uses both of those tools, the CFCI tool gives them so much. Teachers who come from a different setting and, <coughs> and use it for the first time are like, I've never gotten so much feedback. You know, it's a lot of scripted feedback. It's not just a 13-page rubric. So. Lord, do you guys have it as a goal to, to adopt that as your full evaluation for all your teachers and not do NISIS anymore? Because you don't have yeah, to do NISIS. You know that. Right? Even with our BTs? You know, no, I didn't know that. You, can, you charter schools have the flexibility now. Yep. You can get take your tool and get it approved by the state. We've had two people approach us that have yeah. started companies that doing their own evaluation tool. Yeah. Well, we can maybe market ours. So our <laughs> teachers for evaluation, they do a, um, a PIP, they do a personal inquiry project. So it's whatever will enhance them as educators. Um, it does not, unless unless they have a need that's directed by me, <laughs> they, um, they, like Renee is taking on outdoor education. That is her PIP this year and everything. So they, in October, they've all just submitted their um, personal inquiry proposals, project proposals. Um, and so with their evaluation, you know, I observe them formally twice a year. And then they, um, if they're new to CFCI, they also get observed by our curriculum coordinator twice a year, formally. And then we're in and out of classrooms all the time. But um, they do, we do beginning, middle, and data conversations, um, which having some actual data to look at across schools made those much richer. And then um, their personal inquiry projects, which are not just evaluated by me, but by the teachers that sit on our board of directors. Um, and so they take a day and go through all of those, and then we share them at faculty meetings. We're trying to get back to sharing them more um, time at the end of the year. How, how do you uh, differentiate project-based learning and inquiry? Well, it goes back to that being a, a process. A pro, a projects are part of school. Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of projects here. Um, but it's, is it, is, are you just doing a standalone project where you're saying, you know, pick three of these five whatevers and do this? Or did you do something to build up and give them some of that background information and their, um, it's choice-based often. Um, it's, it's the process for and purpose behind the project, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question at all. <laughs> I just have to see it. Like the, the difference in just building, so you saw the bridges out there. So the difference in just building a bridge to test it for weight 
which you could apply that to all kinds of science. I mean, that's awesome science experiment, right? You're, that was a first six weeks of school social get to know collaboration project. And you've been yeah. part, we started, the, our fifth graders started that project, what, four? About four weeks ago. We had our Japanese yeah. visitors. Right? Yeah. It's like four weeks ago. And they have collaborative teams, and every team member has a role. And then they also had a, um, what they call the two people who were selling the products. Suppliers. Yeah. yeah. So they were in charge of all materials, and you know, so they're they're collaborating, coming up with team names, coming up with a team handshake, like all these social pieces. Then they're they're given the budget. So you've seen projects like that. So they're given a budget, and they have to then design their bridges. Um, so they're given a task. The bridge needs to be able to support blah 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 blah. And then they 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 have a certain amount of money that they can use. Um, they have to pay each other. I think. I mean, it was just a whole. It was very intricate in 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 the way that they had to to de, the, from the design process all the way coming through to where they're done now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they look great. So um, the difference in those two projects, you know, like it's there's a project and then there was a they integrated everything into that. They wrote about it. They reflected, but they evaluated each other throughout that process. So it's just not a. It's not just a, a project to check off a list. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to invite Lori and her team to have lunch with us. You guys can all stay and eat lunch when it comes, if you're allowed to. You can come in and get it and take off. Uh, I love Lori, right? Lori, what you said. Because uh, this is, I think, the most frustrating part about the uh, consortium. You go to a school, you see a lot of great ideas, and you want to implement them. You can't. You got to grow from where you are. Okay, so your statement about when you came as a teacher, I was very in my box, and I had to be brought out of my box slowly, not forced. Sometimes as leaders, we just want you to be there right now. Yeah. And if you're not getting it, I need to remove you, and that's not the case. Okay, it's your responsibility. You're in charge of this, folks. So we have a gift for Kate Pearson for inquiry. Good leaders ask great questions. We want to give this to you. This is a gift from from the consortium. I'll give that to you, and then also uh, a copy of John Maxwell's book, Good Leaders Ask Great Questions. It'd be a great Thanks. book study for, for you all. Can we, can we give him a round of applause? All right, thank you so much for sticking around for the entire Principal's Office podcast. Great learning there from Lori and her team. So grateful to them for allowing us to crash their school for a day. Um, and also so grateful to you for, for being part of our audience. I hope that this, this podcast has given you some insight into the inner workings of one charter school. And if you want to hear more, uh, please look for our other episodes. I recommend Eric Sanchez of Henderson Collegiate, Dr. Charles Fuller of Envision Science Academy, and all the other episodes that we bring to you in partnership with the North Carolina Charter School Accelerator. So until next time, thank you so much for listening.